what is going on in the world, in the church, in this crisis, uh, not to describe it, but rather to ponder the mystery of God, which is the answer to what we are going through. And um, I wanted today to first, again, uh, emphasize that we are one body, the church, all the baptized, and we all have influence upon each other for good or for bad. That's also a mystery, right? But it's true. We can do great good or, or be indifferent or do harm. Uh, and we are therefore all responsible for what is happening in the church. Not only the bishops and the priests, but the laity as well. And I think it's so important that before we react in judgments or accusations, that we first sincerely look at the beam in our own eye, because then the Lord will give us the grace to help another with whatever they have in their eye with a lot of mercy. And our motivation then will be correct. And that we have to do as well but with that clarity and mercy that comes from self-knowledge first and the movement of the spirit. So uh, pondering about this, the Lord um, brought me to Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8, where the Lord is showing Isaiah the gravity of Israel's sin how they have departed from the path of the Lord. And then the Lord shows him the severity of the forthcoming punishment. And I thought about us and how the Lord has done that with us. Also showing us in chapter eight, you know, the, what is um, coming and, uh, but then, the Lord God asked, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Who will go for us? And I immediately, you know, the, what comes to mind is, this is like the Lord asking Lourdes and then each one of us, would you be my victim soul? Would you respond? Do you see how different that is than just to be in the sidelines saying, whoa, but you know, there's all these problems, you know, the bishops and the priests and what's going on with the Pope. And the Lord is saying, whom shall I send? And what does Isaiah say? Immediately he responds, here am I, send me. This is the call of Christ for us today. He's asking us to follow him, to share in his sufferings for the people. Only then can we be part of the renewal of the church because it's gotta be by the work of God.
So I've been struggling with this and I would write a line and sometimes I just erase it, says, no, this is not it. And I will compose something. So I'm just sharing with you the fruit of a lot of, um, a lot of this sweat and turmoil. And then I go and I look at Jesus in the blessed sacrament. I look at Mary pierced and uh, the image we have here of her, uh, her heart pierced and then divine mercy. And then the Lord brought this to my mind. What is the, the crisis of faith about? The crisis of faith, because what we're going through, all this abuse and all that, at the bottom is a crisis of faith. What is it about? And then I realized we learn from the apostles to understand the present situation. You see, the Lord's miracles and the Lord's behavior convinced the apostles that God was acting in Jesus. But instead of abandoning themselves in complete trust, they kept trying to use his miracles, to use the Lord's power to advance their own ideas of how the kingdom should be. That's what happened to Judas, of course. But that's what happened to all of them in different ways. They saw the miracles. They knew that God is working in Jesus, even if they did not know at this, moment, at this time that he is God himself, but at least they knew that he has the power of God most definitely, and his ways are way beyond their expectations. They knew that, but they continue to be locked in their human logic and their human efforts. The result is that when Jesus repeatedly announced his crucifixion, they would not listen. It's not that they won't accept it. It's that they just won't even, they were perplexed. They, it, this is not fitting. This is not the plan. It can't it can be that way. And I find that this happens so much with us and with the church. So Peter thought he had a better plan. The others, argued about who is the greatest. James and John wanted important places in the kingdom. And Jesus confronted them all and brought them to the light. He told Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block for me, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but in human things. You see, his sight was so short. And this is all in the gospel, not for our entertainment, not so that we say how foolish Peter was. This is a revelation for us to gain self-knowledge. And to James and John, he says, you do not know what you're asking. 
Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? And they insisted that they could drink, but they couldn't. The cross was necessary to shake them up to the core of their being so that the uselessness of their ways could be exposed. But now they had a choice to open their hearts to faith, to start thinking as God thinks, or to fall into despair. What to do? The turning point for the apostles was when they went to Mary as helpless little children. It's important in the state that they went, no longer, you know, I'm going to be the future minister of the kingdom. I'm going to hold the keys, but as helpless little children, only then were they able to receive the wisdom of the cross. And I pray that the present crisis shakes us up and that like little children, we go to Mary and to the cross to renew our faith. You know, Matthew eleven twenty five. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent and have revealed them to infants. How could Mary remain strong when those men could not? because she relied on God, not on herself. She believed the word of God given by the angel, even when the cross appeared to be a contradiction. With this faith, she gathered the apostles to relive with them Calvary and draw them to the word of the cross, to the power of God, and she exhorted them to remember what Jesus had said and done in their presence. It's so important to remember, to gaze upon the Lord, not to dwell on the problems, but to dwell on the answer which is the cross, which is Jesus, which is his promises. What is the cross? Suffering is the fruit of humanity's rebellion against God. God is not the cause of suffering. As a man, he suffered himself. He healed the sick. He taught his disciples to heal the sick, but we needed much more than physical healing. Satan's hold on us had to be broken, and Jesus came to give his life for us to reconcile us with the Father. The cross represents all the hate and sin of humanity with which Satan came against Jesus, seeking to crush him in order to retain us 
but Jesus defeated Satan by perseverance in love through the cross, becoming love crucified. To crucify is evil. It's the power of Satan represented in the cross coming also against us. But to be crucified willingly for the good of others is the greatest love, is the power that defeats Satan. For no one has greater love than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. John 15, 13. So the cross is the violent clash of God and Satan, of good and evil, of love and hate, in which salvation was accomplished. Jesus turned the cross into a trophy so that we engage in battle united with him by the same power by which he defeated Satan at the cross. There is no other way. The good news is that Jesus loved us that much. The good news is that he is always with us and he assures us of the victory, no matter what we have to go through. United to Christ, we have the power to choose love, even when it implies suffering. If we run from the cross, we allow room for Satan to become stronger against us and exploit us even further. And so embracing the cross is truly wisdom and power. Not embracing in the cross makes us succumb into the one who enslaves us. How worth it is to suffer whatever in order to be free, in order to be one with Christ. So we have to say, it is not enough to battle under the sign of the cross, like Emperor Constantine did. did. After all, he was fighting a Roman legion, but we're fighting legions of demons. It's not enough to carry the cross like the Israelites carried the Ark of the Covenant. When they did that, with pride in their hearts, they were thoroughly defeated. It is not even enough to have a cross as protection. It's not even enough to believe that Jesus died to forgive our sins. All that is true and necessary, but a response is needed because Jesus said, if anyone, if anyone wants to become my follower, let them deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. But today many, many say, 
Thank you, Jesus, for dying for me on the cross and saving me. You're so good, you did it all for me. Now, I do not need to suffer. This is a truth taken to a wrong conclusion. Yes, he died to save me. He did it all for me, but now I have to partake of it. This way of thinking that now, because Jesus died on the cross, now there's nothing I need to do, is a grave misunderstanding of our faith that leads to giving up under trials, justifying our vices and sins as if they were intrinsic to our person. And so many say, I was born that way. I can't help it. That's my personality. And that's why when things about my person come to the light, we get angry, we get upset. We want to protect our ego as if it was God. Instead of facing the reality of my sinfulness and going to battle and suffering with him to be set free. And then we have excuses like saying, but we are human. God understands. Yes, we are human and God does understand. And he became a human and he battled the cross and won. Now he's giving us humans the power to do the same. To be human is to be more and more Christ-like because the fullness of humanity is found on the new man, Jesus, and in the new Eve, Mary. So as we sin, we are not being human, we are dehumanizing ourselves. Yes, we fall because we're weak and frail, but now we have the power that God has given us to be more and more like the Lord. Certainly, it's true that Jesus paid the price for his bride, but there can be no marriage if she has no faith that he will rescue her from her sinful life. Love calls for love. If she has faith, she will trust and lay down her life with him. At weddings, the spouses promise to be true in good times and in bad. What are they doing? They're laying down their lives for one another. Why are they not afraid? Because everybody's afraid to lay down our, their lives for Jesus. Why am I afraid to be a victim soul for Jesus? And then uh, spouses in the wedding, they're not afraid. They go so happy to give their lives for each other. Why are they not afraid? Because they're focused on love. They're focused on the joy of becoming one in love. Well, we then have to fall 
in love with Jesus. That's the answer. That's how we will joyfully give ourselves and lay down our lives for the bridegroom. Love takes away fear. It is our lack of love, our self-centeredness, that prompts us to prefer the cravings of the flesh and our own will over the bridegroom. And Satan exploits that by tempting us, making us think that we can't resist. And if the trial is severe and um, we have a serious vice, such as disorder sexuality, Satan will threaten us with suffering unless we yield, unless we accept the condition that he wants us in. We should not bargain with Satan, nor try to avoid a decision in order to numb the pain. The apostles' way of coping out was to fall asleep at Gethsemane and then later to run away. What did the bridegroom do at that same place when Satan tried to take the bride from him? Like Jesus and with him, we, the bride, must embrace the cross head on. It is his battle. He has already won. We can trust that we are not alone. We can trust that he will lift us up through the trial. Really, everybody suffers crosses. But when we do so for love, the burden becomes light because Christ carries it with us and our attention is not any longer on ourselves, but on the beloved. We don't long, no longer look at our sufferings. We are looking at him. Love does not count the cost. And finally, love gives us a joy that trials cannot take away. Pentecost was not the end of the battle. It was the beginning, actually. But the apostles were so filled with the Holy Spirit that even trials became reasons for rejoicing. Think of that. Ponder the apostles' example after they were beaten severely and imprisoned, and they did not know what was coming. And yet, we read in the Acts of the Apostles 5.41, they rejoiced that they were considered worthy to suffer dishonor for the sake of the name.